I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on DTNS, Uber lets drivers set their own fares, a dialysis machine you can wear and travel with, and should facial recognition be banned? This is the Daily Tech News for Tuesday, January 21st, 2020 in Los Angeles. I'm Tom Merritt. And from Studio Redwood, I'm Sarah Lane. And uh, I'm the show's producer, Roger Chang. Our dear friend Patrick Beja was called away right before the show. Sadly, uh, he helped prepare the show, but he won't be available to do the show. We'll miss him. Uh, We were just talking about... All the great TV shows that we've been watching and movies and stuff on Good Day Internet. If you want that wider conversation, good streaming picks in there. You got to get it. Patreon.com slash DTNS. Let's start with a few tech things you should know. A Canadian court is conducting hearings on the potential extradition of Huawei chief financial officer Meng Wenzhou to the U.S. on charges of bank fraud. Meng has been free in, uh, on bail in Vancouver since December of 2018, was, but was prohibited from leaving the country. Meng's lawyers argue that the case rests on sanctions violations, and Canada did not have the sanctions in question against Iran at the time of the alleged violation. The alleged crime must be illegal in both countries to meet the requirements for extradition. The U.S. maintains that the charge is bank fraud, not sanctions violations at all. YouTube TV has become the first television service to arrive on the Sony PS4 since Sony announced it was shutting down its own service, PlayStation View, as of January 30th. So nine days before it shuts off, if you're a PS View watcher on the PS4, you can switch to YouTube TV. YouTube TV costs $50 a month, which is the same as Sony's cheapest PlayStation View plan. Samsung Electronics named Ro Tae Moon as the new CEO of its smartphone division. Outcoin CEO DJ Ko will continue to head Samsung's IT and mobile and communications divisions. Ro will reportedly focus on building Samsung's reputation for device quality and to further expand shipments into India and also China. Ro has been with Samsung since 1997 and oversaw development of Galaxy mobile devices. Disney Plus is going to launch a week early, March 24th, in the UK, Ireland, France, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Austria, and Switzerland. The streaming service will cost £5.99 per month or £59.99 a year. Disney Plus launched in the U.S. and Canada back in November and uh, also launched in the Netherlands as a testing ground first. So uh, now we're getting a few more countries to enjoy Baby Yoda. I miss Patrick on days where I have to pronounce people's French last names, but French President Emmanuel Macron 
announced that he will suspend a planned digital tax in the country and that France will work with the U.S. to avoid a rise in tariffs. The digital tax, which is now suspended until the end of 2020, would apply a 3% levy on revenue from digital services earned in France by companies with revenues of more than 25 million euros. That's about 28 million U.S. dollars in France and 75 million euros worldwide. 750 million euros. What did I say? Uh, you said 75. Which one's yeah, right? Yeah, no, a little bit. No, 750. Okay. <laughs> yes. uh, finally, Sonos will stop providing software updates and new features for its oldest products starting in May. We knew this was coming, but now you know when. That includes Sonos Zone players, the Connect, Connect Amp, anything manufactured between 2011 and 2015, uh, the first generation Play 5, the CR200 controller, and the Bridge. Sonos says customers can keep using the products <laughs> after support ends or replace them with a modern Sonos product at a discount. Remember, there's that whole discount thing where they disable the old one if you get the discount. It's I got a couple yeah. Play 5s. Uh, I knew this was coming. So it goes. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about this Uber thing. Yeah, let's. Uber is testing a new feature that lets some drivers in California set their own fares when picking up passengers at airports in Santa Barbara, Palm Springs, and Sacramento. Those are all smaller-ish airports, but you know, they, 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 there's a fair amount of people coming out of there. A source told the Wall Street Journal that drivers can set fares in 10% increments up to five times the Uber base fare. California's passage of Assembly Bill 5 now requires companies to treat workers as employees rather than individuals. Independent contractors, if operations are deemed controlled by the company. Uber has argued that this is a technology platform that connects riders with drivers. They're not a transportation company, and so drivers aren't part of its core business. Yeah, you may have heard us talk about the three-part test. It was it was a court decision before, and now it's been enshrined in law. Uh, and essentially, it says, look, if if you're uh, if they're doing things for your business that your business does, if they're replicating what your business does, then you have to treat them as employees. So what Uber's trying to claim is, well, our business is just hooking riders up with drivers. Our business isn't driving people around, and so. They're attempting to show that by adding yeah. these new features. Yeah, the drivers, you know, they, they can set their own fares if they so choose. And that, I don't know, I mean, whether or not you think that Uber's in the right by doing this, I see where the company is going here because they don't want to pay benefits, you know, and, you know, give sick time to, to, to and payroll uh, tax and all, all of that it. Kind of yeah, yeah. To people that they consider independent contractors. And that's how it's been this entire time. You know, it would be, it would be a financial uh, issue for the company, which is trying to be profitable and isn't actually yet. But I wonder as a writer, cause I use Uber and Lyft, but you know, I, I use Uber often how that really, you know, how, do, how does that, how does that look to me? Let's say I arrive at Palm Springs. I want to get a ride. I, you know, do I see a, you know, a, a you know, a cornucopia of drivers, each with their own rates, and figure out, well, how quickly do I need to get to my destination? That isn't necessarily a bad thing, as long as the choice is there and it's and it's obvious to me and it's visual. But I don't know what that looks like compared to the way that the app works now. Yeah, the way iMore describes it, uh, it creates a bidding system where drivers who set the lowest price are more likely to get a customer first. Drivers with higher prices get matched with riders as the demand increases. So if there's a glut of drivers, then I guess that makes sense. I'm always, as a, a rider, going to get the lowest price available. Mm. But 
as a writer, what if there aren't that? The, the situation I face more often is there aren't that many drivers. And if, yeah. if so Uber uses like your loyalty level because they have a loyalty program, uh, you know, how many other writers in your area are requesting things. They use a lot of stuff to determine what driver you get assigned. And if you've got one driver that would normally be assigned to you that's five minutes away but has a higher price than a driver that's 15 minutes away, I mean, which one do I get? And which one do yeah. I want? I'm not even sure. Do I want to wait 15 minutes to get the lower price? Kind of depends on how much cheaper it is than the guy's five minutes away, I guess. It it kind of reminds me of buying flights these days. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not just about what flight is cheapest. It's like, are there, you know, you know, do I have to connect somewhere? Is, it, is there going to be a long layover? Is the airline, you know, one of my favorites? All of that stuff. It's, I mean, and Uber is legitimately, if if you said... Anybody can use Uber to be a driver or a rider. And when we really are just connecting them, it, it would be a service. There are services like this that exist for taxi companies. The services are not the taxi company. They're just the software provider. So Uber's trying to inch down that road and say, hey, taxis get to set whatever price they want. Uh, mm-hmm. And the companies that operate their software that aren't the taxi company aren't responsible. So we want to be classified like that. We want to be considered just a software provider for a bunch of independent contractors, which a lot of people forget that's actually Uber started by matching up the black car drivers who are independent contractors often with riders and then started saying, well, why couldn't we do this for anybody who has a car? And that's when they started to get in trouble. So uh, there's a lot of questions about, well, how do I as a writer not get screwed by this. But I I suppose the answer is that's why they're doing it in a very limited test, in very limited areas, in very limited situations to kind of figure out how all that works. Six sources tell Reuters that Apple dropped plans to let iPhone users fully encrypt backups of their devices using iCloud after the FBI complained that the feature would harm investigations. iCloud backups to iPhone backups rather to iCloud are encrypted, but Apple has access to the encryption keys and can and can share them when legally required to do so. Apple says it keeps the keys to help users who get locked out of accounts and, you know, their, you know, stuff like that. In 2018, the Financial Times reported sources who said that Apple was working on a plan to offer end-to-end encryption, meaning it would no longer hold these keys. This hasn't happened. A former Apple employee told Reuters legal killed it for reasons you can imagine, (laughs) meaning pressure from the FBI. A source in the FBI said that Apple was convinced of law enforcement needs. Yeah. So we've got three reasons. We've got Tim Cook in 2019 saying, well, one of the benefits of, you know, keeping the keys ourselves is helping people from getting locked out of, uh, of their, their iCloud uh, situation. And man, we have, we have a lot of people who have problems with iCloud. So I, that's a reasonable thing. There's also sure. the inside source saying, no, the FBI was putting pressure on them at San Bernardino. They're having all these backroom talks. And so Apple saying, you know what? Fine. We won't proceed down this room because we have another reason why. So let's just back off. That's possible too. And the FBI saying, we just convinced them that it's important to help fight the bad guys. I mean, I'm sure that actually plays a part in it. James uh, from Irvine wrote in and said, I bet the usability concern was a big factor in the decision, not just pressure from law enforcement. I have to say, I kind of feel like it's all three. It's, it's you know, it's like perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, you can also choose as, you know, because there have been a couple situations where Apple has said, listen, we're working with law enforcement. They can access iCloud backups of, uh, you know, 
uh, uh, iPhones that were suspected to help us be able to figure out an investigation, you know, some of them, you know, with, with lethal results. And that's all fine and good. You know, a user can also choose not to have an iCloud backup. So that's right. not exactly Apple saying, well, you know, we're letting you. This is just the way that we're letting you. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't all work the same way, but it does, it is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting admission, I guess, uh, on Apple's part that they, they do, you know, kind of go with this whole kind of data privacy for the consumer first, but not always. Well, and, and it, the, the, the damning thing about this is that the source was saying they were going to offer the option. And my guess is to get around the, the user problem, because yeah, you can do your backup on your own, but it's difficult. And for a lot of people, it's just what my mom has an iPhone and she would never back this up on her own. She needs iCloud to have her backup. It's the only way that works for her. Uh, my, my guess is Apple would have provided an option where you could choose the end-to-end encryption as long as you acknowledged, I won't be able to recover my, my password if, if, this, if I forget it. Um, right. I'm guessing that's where they were going, and they backed up because of FBI pressure. And the reason this story is being leaked now is because they're getting pressure from the U.S. government to go farther. And they're like, you know what, let's just leak out what we've done so far and get the pressure back on the government because people won't like this, even if it does mm. make Apple look bad. Mm-hmm. At a media event last week, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella explained his vision for Microsoft in the 1920s. Uh, I'm sorry, 2020s. Uh, <laughs> he focused on cloud and how Internet of Things will greatly expand the number of devices. Analysts estimate there are about 22 billion connected devices right now and estimate that the number will reach 50 billion between sometime between 2025 and 2030, depending on who you ask. Nadella said to this group, and I quote, if there's going to be 50 billion endpoints, Windows with its billion is good. Android with its 2 billion is good. iOS with its billion is good. But there is 46 billion more. So let's go and look at what that 46 billion plus 4 looks like and define a strategy for that and then have everything have a place under the sun. So in other words, if you're like, wait, I don't quite follow that. Nadella is saying, yeah, we've got a billion of the 50 billion with Windows and we've got a bunch of software on Android and Apple. So we're good. But we really need to be looking on how to serve those other 46 billion endpoints. Nadella said he sometimes wonders if he should call Windows Azure Edge. And I think that is an insight to how he thinks about this. All of this helps explain why Microsoft makes otherwise confusing partnerships like Amazon for voice services. Why didn't they compete with Cortana? Why did they integrate Samsung on Android? Why are they putting their software in partnership with Samsung instead of making their own device? When they're making their own device, why are they using Android? And Sony and cloud services for gaming. People are still like uh, freaked out. Like, why is Microsoft providing cloud services for Sony's online gaming? Well, this is why. Because they don't consider themselves to be competing on the edge. The edge is just there to bring people into the tent to use the cloud services. And they want to be there for all 50 billion devices at some point. This sounds a lot like what we're seeing with the smart home and companies saying, all right, you know, there's 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 two there's too many devices out there that don't talk to each other well enough. And we're all going to suffer if they talk to each other better then we're all going to make more money because we're going to sell more devices. Same same idea here, really. Yeah, no, it's it, that is definitely part of it, which is like we need to be the people providing the data that goes to the devices, not trying to control the pipe on how it gets there or it's not going to work for anybody. Let's go back to the 1980s, shall we? Uh, you mentioned the 20s, Tom. 
<laughs> in the 1980s, research showed how you could cover the entire planet with internet connectivity with just four satellites. Yes, they were talking about it that long ago. Unfortunately, gravity keeps pulling at satellites, meaning they have to keep an energy source on board to keep them in place, meaning... Somebody's got to pay for that. It costs money to do that. Most satellite internet projects, therefore, use thousands of smaller and cheaper satellites in lower Earth orbit. New research published in Nature Communications by engineers at nonprofit the Aerospace Corporation propose an interesting solution. A more circular o- orbit would take advantage of the pull from the sun, the moon, and the Earth to keep four satellites in orbit for 6,000 days, 16.4 years. One successful model orbits on a 48-hour period at 42,000 miles, covering 95% of the planet with downtime at no more than 80 minutes per day. The satellites need 60% less propellant than typical configurations, which would require reducing the cost. Yeah, so a typical configuration uh, is is pretty expensive because it's elliptical. But this new circular orbit that they've modeled, they had two successful orbits. Uh, one was not quite as comprehensive as the one at 42,000 miles, uh, would, would make it feasible to do this. It, it brings the cost into a range where it might be worth doing. The problem is it's not, never going to be good for, for gaming or video streaming because you've got like a second delay. Uh, it's 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 a pretty long lag, but it's for data processing and for for just general connectivity. Uh, it might be useful. The other thing is we've got all these products putting thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit because that's cheap, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. and it's redundant. So if one of your thousand satellites fails, no big deal. You you your network stays up and you launch a couple to to replace it. If you've only got four and one of them fails, well, then you lose significant connectivity. So you'd have to build in that redundancy. But I guess if you're down to four, you could launch eight, and it's still, you know, got double the redundancy. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. uh, There's some skepticism about whether this is going to change anybody's mind about low Earth orbit versus high Earth orbit, uh, or, uh, you know, about going 42,000 miles. But it is very significant that someone has done the math and said, actually, this would work. This would bring the cost down. It'll be, I'll be curious if anybody decides to go after this. And forgive me for you know, not understanding uh, orbits in space uh, as, well as, as well as others, but would this possibly work the way that planes work, where you've got smaller planes, and maybe there are more of them, that are that are that are flying lower than some of the larger planes, and there are fear of them fl- flying higher. And as long as there is a system to make sure that nobody's colliding, you actually end up. You, well, in in the plane situation, you're taking more passengers, more places. But in the satellite situation, you have more connectivity across the board. Yeah, sort of. I mean, the principle of why you have bigger planes and fewer of them higher it has to do, you know, roughly speaking, with the cost. Uh, and, and the cost isn't, the cost isn't just launching. It's the amount of fuel you have to carry with you, which makes it heavy all, you know, and maintaining position and all of that. I don't think collisions is, is a big issue yet. There's a lot of people warning about like, Hey, if we keep doing this, we're going to have to worry about collisions. Uh, but I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily the key issue with the, with the four satellite. It's more like people just didn't think it was feasible. They just didn't think that you could afford to do it. And now somebody showed like, Hey, this would make it affordable. Tech in Asia reports on startups working on a wearable dialysis machine to help people who need kidney treatment travel around. You wouldn't have to sit in a hospital for sometimes up to half a day. Startups in this area include Sweden's Triomed, 
wearable artificial organs here in the United States, nanodialysis in the Netherlands, and Singapore's AWOK. A-W-A-K. AWOK received breakthrough device designation from the U.S. FDA last year to expedite development and review, and AWOK's artificial kidney has a pump and a disposable cartridge that filters toxins. It does something called peritoneal dialysis, or PD. You probably know about hemodialysis. That's the one that takes the blood out of the body, cleans it, and puts it back in. Uh, That's not how PD works. PD injects a solution that absorbs the toxins, which it then removes. And that makes it a little easier to adapt a wearable device So, you, because you have a cartridge that the user can have for 7 to 10 hours a day, processing about 2 liters of solution each hour. And then once the cartridge is expired and, and the solution is it can't bring in any more toxins anymore, you, you replace it. The device is tested safe in 2018 uh, in a clinical trial conducted at Singapore General Hospital. Further trials are expected in 12 to 18 months, after which AWOC might launch in Singapore. Uh, competitor Triomed completed its trial in 2018, uh, so it's kind of on the heels. And Nanodialysis says its company expects to launch a product in 2022. So definitely in the next couple of years, we might see one or more of these. And I would love somebody from our audience who either has firsthand experience with dialysis or or or, or knows somebody who has uh, because uh, to, to, to weigh on, in on this, because on the surface, this is amazing to me to not have to have something extracted and then put back in just to have something put in kind of, you know, clean up stuff and then and then and then and then uh, pulled back out sounds great. And I know it is extremely debilitating and limiting to have to go through dialysis treatment. And so this this has to be really good news uh, in the, you know, the scientific um, in in science for yeah. for this arena. Yeah, my mother-in-law uh, uh, is no longer with us, but she had to uh, deal with this for years and she could travel but it was limiting because she had to make sure she could find a place to go in and do dialysis. And, you know, she really couldn't spend a lot of time because she had to spend so much time in dialysis. This would have changed mm-hmm. her life. So it's huge. Folks, if you want to get all the tech headlines each day in about five minutes, be sure to subscribe to DailyTechHeadlines.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe tap-to-pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. 
What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. A New York Times investigation reports more than 600 U.S. law enforcement agencies use facial recognition for, from a company called Clearview AI. Clearview basically made a really good image search engine. Uh, they scraped more than 3 billion images from sites like Facebook, YouTube, and Venmo to create a database. And law enforcement can now upload a picture to the system, which will return matching pictures and links to where those images are hosted. It's reverse image search for people's faces, which then allows law enforcement to figure out what the identity is. The New York Times says police have used the system to solve several crimes already. The problems with facial recognition generally, not just with Clearview, are false positives. The AI isn't perfect. Uh, One report here says that Clearview AI is about 75% accurate. Bias in recognition systems often carry through the biases of the creators. Uh, So you may have it match people based on their race uh, more inaccurately than others. And there's always the potential for doctored images to lead to wrongful arrests. In a draft document from the EU obtained by Politico last week, a three to five year ban on the use of facial recognition because of those problems has been suggested for public spaces. In other words, private or public organizations could not use facial recognition outside the lab. At a conference on Monday, Google CEO Sundar Pichai suggested a temporary ban on facial recognition, similar to what the EU is suggesting. Uh, something also uh, recently suggested could be immediate, said Pichai, but maybe there's a waiting period before we really think about how it's being used. So he doesn't commit to the three to five year period that the EU is, but he's saying maybe there should be a ban. Microsoft President Brad Smith has argued previously, earlier than any of these folks, December 2018, that government should regulate facial recognition. He called for that a long time ago. But in response to the idea of the EU ban, he told NPR the only way to make it better is actually to continue developing it. So he says we shouldn't ban it because it won't get better if we don't try it out in public. He believes there is a responsible way to use it in public. Smith has called for legislation that mandates impact assessments for using the technology, notifying the public when facial recognition is in use, so some transparency, and a requirement that people give consent to the technology's use when entering a premises. Uh, Those are all similar to other proposed EC requirements besides the ban. So... We've got an interesting situation development where uh, Google uh, is saying, look, uh, this shouldn't be allowed to be used. And there, there's there's a reverse image search out there, which I, I guess Google probably has technology like that, too. Uh, and they, that should be shut down. But you've got Brad Smith, who historically has been uh, very much fighting on the side of the user in a lot of these things, including facial recognition, saying, you know what? A full-on ban might be going too far. Yeah, I... Uh, I am of the mind that this is not always a bad thing. Facial recognition, as the technology evolves, uh, you know, like Brad Smith says, it it it's not the 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 idea of like we don't know how it uh, how it works well enough yet. We should not use it. I don't think that that's actually the solution. I think that there should definitely be limitations on going inside any 
um, any anything that is not public land and not knowing that this is happening, that is one thing, sort of like being photographed, you know, just in general, right? There are different rules for that sort of thing. I think that uh, the, the idea that catching a bad guy based on something that can be reverse image searched based on facial recognition out in the wild is not always a bad thing. But the false positives are where it gets really tricky. Maybe this becomes something that can never be used solely on its own to solve a crime or convict somebody of something. Uh, maybe it's, you know, it's some supplemental evidence, maybe, you know, kind of like a lie detector test. I'm not sure. I'm just kind of shooting from the hip mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a tricky thing because it's very powerful technology, but again, in the wrong hands or with people who don't understand it well enough, where again, have biases, it can be dangerous. The problem is scale. This, this is not new technology. Uh, the, the ability to, to put an image into something, even Google, and say, hey, show me other images like this has been around for decades. Uh, the problem is, is, is the fact that this is now good at it, that there are more pictures of people than ever. Uh, and that when you were uploading your pictures to Facebook and Venmo, you didn't think about this as a consequence. No one did. No one thought, oh, I wonder if this could be used to catch me in a crime, right? Uh, people are just sharing their photos. So it's it's got people on the back foot because of that. They're like, wow, this has gotten good really fast and we don't like it. But it hasn't gotten good enough to make people feel confident that it won't be misused. So it's it's kind of caught in the middle where it got good enough to be scared of, but not good enough to trust. And because of that, you need to have a nuanced approach to it and say, this can be used for good. Do we trust that it will? And the prevailing sentiment these days is no, we don't trust that technology companies or the government will use this for good. So you get people wanting it to just be banned, even though I agree that Brad Smith's not wrong, that there is a way possibly to use it responsibly. Nobody trusts that it will be. And so the slippery slope ends up being the victor here, uh, where people say, I don't care what you say. I don't trust you that it's going to be used responsibly. I'd rather it not be used at all. And unfortunately, with that kind of prevailing public opinion, I'm not sure that this can be used until cooler heads prevail decades down the road. And once you enter something like Venmo into the conversation, it's like, okay, that's about financial transactions. My, my face and also my financial transactions all, also become – that's a whole other privacy thing. It wasn't like, oh, Sarah was here at this time at this corner you know, on a busy street. It's a little bit more of, ooh, private information and what, what that profile picture might have been and how that data gets extracted for purposes, again, that might not be for my best interests. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's something where I, you know, there's a lot of fear around it. People, I think, assume that it's being abused, and there's no evidence that it's even really being used that widely. I mean, we've got 600 police departments out of millions of police departments using it. It's not that wide. We don't have any evidence in this New York Times story that it was abused, just the fear that it could be abused. I'm not trying to minimize those fears. I'm just saying there's a lot of people condemning this as being abused before we actually have seen it even be fully implemented. And in that kind of in that kind of situation, you're not going to get widespread acceptance of this. And trying to force it into being implemented is just going to get people angry. Yeah. 
Hey, thanks to everybody who participates in our subreddit. You never make us angry. You can submit stories and vote on them at dailytechnewsshow.reddit.com. You can also join in the conversation in our Discord 24-7. Lots of chatters. Good folks. Where you can join by linking to a Patreon account at patreon.com slash DTNS. All right, let's check in with the amateur traveler who has some tips on making the most of limitations of technology on flights. This is Chris Christensen from Amateur Traveler with another Tech in Travel Minute. A recent survey by Snow Software talked about how technology has impacted the travel process. And certainly things like apps and websites and Wi-Fi on airplanes have improved the process. But over half of travelers said that they've had technology issues with travel. And the leading issues were things like fluctuating prices and frustrating and slow websites. Now, the frustrating and and slow websites is certainly a problem of the people who made those websites. But the fluctuating prices is really the way the travel industry works. So that's not what I would expect to be solved anytime soon. But you can also take advantage of that by getting on one of the many email lists there are that offer travel deals. I'm Chris Christensen from Amateur Traveler. You know, I, I almost forgot uh, as an addendum to our facial recognition story, uh, government officials in Suzhou in China's Anhui province uh, released pictures of people wearing nightwear outside with their name and ID number and other information, calling it uncivilized behavior. Uh, Suzhou is entering a national civilized city competition and has banned its citizens from wearing pajamas outside because they don't they, they, they want to win this competition. Chinese citizens, this is this is interesting, Chinese citizens complained online that there is nothing wrong with wearing pajamas in public. Chinese citizens complained online, news story, Chinese citizens complaining online about a government policy specifically, I, yeah. uh, bigger news story, <laughs> right. and officials in that city have now sincerely apologized and said, of course, we should protect residents' privacy. Uh, in a country where public surveillance is the norm... Uh, where it is assumed uh, that this kind of facial recognition is used um, legally in China, but but legally to suppress things uh, that would not be suppressed in other countries. Uh, it's really interesting to see a public backlash uh, against the use of facial recognition in that case. Especially, you know, calling it nightwear, that's a little limiting. Uh, well, some of us it. like to I wear PJs I, all day. That's my fault. Oh, that was you. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. Hey, listen. Uh, it's uh, you know it, this is not this is not indecent exposure. This is comfy. You know, I I love a good sweatpants. A little fancy sweatpants on a Saturday, listen, not a problem. You'll see me around town. I will not wear my pajamas outside, but I will I will fight for your right to do so, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Hey, shout out to our patrons at our master and grandmaster levels. You can all wear your PJs around us at any time of the day, including Brad Schick, Paul Boyer, and Dustin Campbell. And we have new Patreon reward merchandise to celebrate six years of DTNS. Len Peralta created a special logo that we've got on a mug, on a T-shirt. The T-shirt is really, like, smooth. I've been wearing it as pajamas. It's very nice. Uh, There's also a poster and a sticker. It depends on what level you're at. You just got to stick at that level for three months. Find out more at patreon.com slash DTNS slash merch. You know, I've got a Patreon shirt that I am wearing here, but has also been worn as pajamas because it's real soft and supple. Our email address is feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com. If you've got feedback on anything we talk about, we would love to hear it. We're also live Monday through Friday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. That's 21.30 UTC, and you can find out more at dailytechnewsshow.com slash live. Back tomorrow with Scott Johnson. Talk to you then. This is 
This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.